0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the debut episode of this podcast series. My name is Dr. Christina Wang. I'm a retina specialist at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. First, let's talk a little bit about this podcast. Evolve Medical Education hosts a series of roundtable discussions from time to time and then adapts those roundtable discussions into print materials that ophthalmologists and optometrists learn from and receive CME or CE credit for completing. And sometimes those conversations are so strong that the team felt it was a waste to let portions fall to the cutting room floor. So with that in mind, Evolve wants to provide a peek behind the curtain for our most dedicated followers and collaborators. And they've asked me to be your guide through finding some portions of recent discussions that were particularly cutting edge. The format for episodes of this podcast series will probably change. And who knows, maybe the future of CME includes podcasts, but for now, we're going to invite you to sit in on an Evolve Medical Education Roundtable. This one was hosted by Dr. Roger Goldberg. I'll let him and the panelists introduce themselves.
1: This is Roger Goldberg. Um, I am a retina specialist at Bay Area Retina Associates uh, out of Walnut Creek, California, which is outside San Francisco. And I'm also a volunteer faculty at the California Pacific Medical Center Ophthalmology Residency Program.
2: Uh, my name is David Lally, and I am a retina doctor at New England Retina Consultants, uh, located in Springfield, Massachusetts. Uh, title would be director of the Retina Research Institute at New England Retina Consultants, and I am an uh, assistant professor uh, of ophthalmology at the University of Massachusetts and also um, at Tufts University.
3: I'm um, Carlos Medina. I am a retina surgeon at uh, Victor Retinal Medical Group at Sacramento, which is uh, part of uh, this big retina conglomerate now, which is called Retinal Consultants of America.
4: Hi, my name is Diana
0: Shekman. Hi, I'm Mary Beth Yaki. It's an honor to be speaking with you all tonight. Um, I'm from Cincinnati Eye Institute, now that we know who we'll be hearing from, let's listen in on their conversation. Dr. Goldberg starts by discussing the disconnect between measured visual acuity and functional vision.
1: I'm really always uh, impressed the disconnect between the measured visual acuity and the symptoms that patients report. And some patients are, like, very ha- highly... Um, uh, attentive and they'll say, ah, oh, geez, like i you know, really having difficulty reading or patients who are able to drive, but then they go through uh, the Caldecott Tunnel, uh, which is on a major thoroughfare here in the Bay Area, and it's dark in that tunnel, and they feel like they cannot see when they make the sun transition from daylight driving in a sunny day into the darker tunnel, and it's uh, it, it can be very disabling for people. And yet they'll, they'll recognize, you know, they'll, they'll kind of measure 2020 20 or 2025 20, vision mm-hmm. and other patients who I think are less attentive and they just say, ah, oh, I've got old eyes, you know, and, and I don't know if anybody else on the call has heard people say that, like, oh, I just got aging eyes and kind of thinking like, oh, it's normal to have a decrease in your visual function as you get older Um And so I think it's important um, to really drive home the message that there can be quite a disconnect between, you know, the visual acuity, what we measure in a dark room looking at black letters on a white background, and how patients are actually functioning. So uh, have you guys, you know, kind of seen that same disconnect? and, And how do you counsel your patients when you, you know, when they've got good vision, quote-unquote good vision on the eye chart, but are complaining about the quality of their vision?
3: Sure. Um, I'll take that, Roger. Um, I mean, we all know that GA starts um, with foveal sparing, and when you can measure the EDTRS um, chart uh, visual acuity to be stable, the patient's vision is not stable. And um, there's different ways to get around that and, um, obviously, asking them or with questionnaires, or um, you know, checking reading speed or low luminance visual acuity, or even microperimetry are all um, ways to look at uh, non-foveal uh, visual acuity experiment. Uh But you know, in a busy clinic, nobody really does that. So just using images to show patients that their disease is progressing and that you understand that they are getting worse and. Um, again, offer them lifestyle modifications and um, and and clinical trials is is sometimes helpful. Um, it absolutely helps helps convince them um, that something needs to be done when you, when you show them the progression and you show them that you understand that they are progressing.
4: I will echo that I think it's invaluable to show the patient the fluorescein or that we can't do fluorescing necessarily at my practice, but the autofluorescence and just show them the, the growing. Uh, changes through, through the imaging and because it's hard to have the the patient with their, uh, friend who's, who's come with them, who's driven them to the exam and they're sitting in the seat and they're listening and they're like, but I don't understand. She just recorded 20, 25 visual acuity, but to be able to throw up those pictures, be, be it OCT, but I think autosurface is said it's so impressive and show them the growing scar and show them how that is limiting in their vision, I think is, is a very helpful piece in the clinic.
1: Yeah, I actually think this is this would be an area where I think there's the opportunity potentially for great collaboration between the optometrist or primary eye care provider and the retina specialist because as Carlos mentioned some of the other uh tests like low luminance or or reading speed uh or microperimetry are not kind of practical in the retina clinic, but I think could be practical um, in the primary eye care clinic. Um, Diana, what do you think about that possibility of of kind of forming a more collaborative relationship between optometry and retina and, and kind of empowering optometry to help manage and track the disease from a functional standpoint using some of these other functional tests?
5: I think that's, that's a terrific point. I mean, most of what we have done in our particular clinic is collaborative work. I think we embrace the OD community tremendously to try to assess that. And I love the fact that you use the word collaborative as opposed to co-management, which is the one word that most people want to try to use. Um, this would be true collaboration, uh, particularly those who specialize within the area, I think, of low vision, because they're not only assessing the visual function, as you mentioned, with the low luminance, contrast sensitivity, speed, Questionnaires, et cetera, but also be able to use that information to be able to manage the patients better and to be able to help them with their everyday activities by different sources of motility, low vision aids, et cetera. So I think it is a great embracing way to try to collaborate to try to provide the best care for the patient at hand.
2: I would jump in here and echo, you know, I think that's a great idea, Roger. And I think that I think there are many symptoms that these patients come to our offices. Uh, uh, that they complain of with problems of their activities of daily living, which are occurring mm-hmm. prior to us detecting a drop in the snell and visual acuity. And I think if we can uh, uh, spend more time, and I and I agree that the uh, the collaboration with optometry would be really important in this case. Uh, we'd be able to collect more functional measures like mm-hmm. you're describing to to correlate with those symptomatic complaints from the patient. So, you know, I, I do think that if an optometrist or any eye care provider is going to be seeing a patient with geographic atrophy, paying attention to their symptoms as opposed, uh, uh, paying attention to their symptoms, I think, is more important than the visual acuity at that initial visit.
0: Well said. Yes, I agree. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. Let's get back to eavesdropping on a roundtable discussion moderated by Dr. Roger Goldberg.
1: So, David, I'm curious. uh, You're in, I guess, uh, Western Mass is a little bit more of a rural environment, and I suspect that you have quite a large uh, geography where patients are coming uh, from far and wide to see you. I'm in the Bay Area, which is Uh, a little bit more densely populated and, frankly, more densely populated with medical providers, including the full spectrum of eye care providers. So I'm curious kind of in your area kind of what percentage of patients with GA do you think, David, make it to your clinic versus are just kind of seeing their local ophthalmologist or optometrist and not making the, the bigger trip to Springfield to see a subspecialist?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. It's an important question, and we don't have exact data to know the answer. Um, I can tell you that being in a more rural area, you are correct that a lot of times patients have to drive one to two hours away to, to visit our office, and what we do see is we do see that those patients with GA who are being referred in for GA are almost always symptomatic with some complaint of something with their vision getting worse over the you know the last year or a recent time point so so we're not seeing asymptomatic you know non-fobial ga patients and and i think a lot of it is because those patients would have to travel far and the referring providers feel comfortable you know understanding that there's no standard of care fda-approved treatments yet for the disease Um, although they may they may in that case Uh, discuss the options of clinical trials, and in that case, if the patient was interested, they may refer that asymptomatic patient to us. But that would be specifically for a patient who is interested in a clinical trial, and that's why it's been very important for us to, uh, as a retina practice, to stay in good communication with our referring doctors so that they understand what the options for clinical trials are. Uh, for their patients with geographic atrophy because the landscape is just changing very quickly. You know, every year there's just been an explosion of clinical trials for this disease, and so there's a lot of options for patients now uh, that they didn't have a couple years ago.
5: If I may add one thing, which I thought was a great point that was just made, was the fact is that there is a, a difference in or not a perfect relationship, I would say, between function and structure. What happens oftentimes, I can tell you from our referring ODs, is they often kind of worry more about visual function. So if someone has, say, a large GA central and they're 2400, they're actually more worried about that particular patient than, unfortunately, the one who is 20-20 and maybe has very subtle changes. And we can do far more for that particular patient, particularly coming to clinical trials. So I think because there is such a difference between function and structure and the true understanding of the disease, making awareness, particularly for the referring doctors in education, becomes almost critical, understanding there's a lot more that we can do for these earlier patients first, rather than someone who's already 2,400. There's not much we can do at this point.
4: Diana, that's uh, well said.
3: Yeah, I, I, I totally agree that, you know, communicating with the referral base is super important. Um, we, we serve a, a very... Uh, large catchment area with hundreds and hundreds of referral docs. And um we found that the easiest, or at least I found that the easiest way to communicate with doctors is through our, through our patients' notes and just educating them or informing them of what we have available. So when I see a patient with geographic atrophy, I actually, you know, in the patient's notes say, the patient qualified for this clinical trial that's looking into this and, and I find that they, they like this because they feel that they actually, and they did do actually something great for the patient and, and for science and for humanity. Um, and you know, we also, or I also explained that there's a rate of progression and that there is foveal sparing, but that, you know, it's not going to be like this all, you know, for, for a long time that we know that fobial sparing GA will lead to foveal-involving GA within several years and that there is going to be some progression unless we enroll them in clinical trials and whether or not they were able to be enrolled or not and why. And, uh, and the referral doctors, I, I think, uh, really, really appreciate that.
1: You know, I'd be curious just to continue this, you know, kind of structure-function conversation, um, which is... Uh, you know, the disease can be asymmetric between eyes as well. And so maybe I'll start with Mary Beth. How do you think about the patient who has maybe pretty good sized GA, but sparing the fovea and the other eye has intermediate dry AMD, good vision? Um, you know, and sometimes those patients, particularly I've if it's not their dominant eye or they are you know some patients just kind of pay more attention to each eye individually um kind of how do you how do you think about that patient and uh whether or not to pass a pass that patient along to a retina specialist?
4: so I think um anytime I see g a in my clinic specifically right now, we are sending them to this research coordinator to be quite honest, and reason we're also doing stem cell research for central involving uh g a um, so we've done two patients with stem cells, and then, you know, in addition to the non sovial involving GA, that's so important to educate the patient and, you know, let them know, I always let them know your eyes, you know, your right hand looks like your left hand, your right foot looks like your left foot. If I put my hand or my foot there, we know it doesn't belong just like your eyes. So if one eye is starting to lose vision, even if it's the non-dominant, I try to make them aware of it, and the fact that the other eye may progress into the same uh, format as well in the future.
0: thanks for joining us. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or leave a review on Spotify if that's where you're listening. And no matter your podcast platform of choice, be sure to tap subscribe to get our latest episodes. Until next time, I'm Dr. Christina Wang.